Hey everybody, this is Troy, one of the pastors at First Church of the Nazarene. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It is a glimpse into the life of our church. We are ordinary people being transformed into passionate followers of Jesus. And we are committed to join God in the remaking of all things. I pray that this sermon is a blessing and helps you join God today. If we can serve you in any way, we would love to. Please get a hold of us at lafayettenaz.org. Have a great day. There are two basic questions, two of the most basic questions that all of us have to answer. Who am I? Why am I here? Who am I? And why am I here? Two of the most basic and fundamental questions that every person, not just people who serve us, but every person has to face those questions. Who am I? Why am I here? We, in fact, we spend a, a good portion of our life as adolescents and early in, into our 20s and who are we kidding? Our 30s and our 40s and our 50s and our 60s answering those two basic and fundamental questions. Who am I? And why am I here today? Um, I want to talk about the first of those questions. I just really want to focus in on that. I want to help us as God's people respond to and answer the question, who am I? Who am I? It's a question of identity. Now, some people get their identities from their performance. We get our perform- from our performance. So it's like, I am what I do. I am what I do. So Let's say that you're at some sort of a social gathering or a party and you're getting to know someone. And what is the first question that you are asked or what is the first question you ask of the other person? What do you do? What do you do? Now, some people give that just like a really quick response, but other people, they like answer that simple question, what do you do with like a resume? You know, they have that resume in their mind. Uh, The cultural critic David Brooks calls the world that we live in, we live in this world of resume virtues. And so you realize as you're kind of going through that or as someone else is going through like what they do, that for that person, that job isn't just a job. It's not even a career. It's their identity. Because the truth is we do live in an achievement society. Like do something, produce something, achieve something, And it affects us at the core of our identity so that when we answer the question, who am I, we answer it by what we do. It's crippling, and it's a really difficult way to live. But for many of us, we get our identity from our performance. I am what I do. For others of us, that's not the case at all. We get our identity from our possessions. So I am what I have, or I am what I wear or I am what I drive, or I am where I live. And we live in this cycle of work more so we can buy more, so that we can repeat that whole cycle all over again. And as a follower of Jesus, I am convinced that when we push God to the margin of our life and we um, push God to the margins of society and culture, that there is this void that is left behind. And for many of us, we have attempted to fill that void because we've pushed God away, we've attempted to fill that void with stuff. And so like materialism has become our new religion, 
Amazon.com has become our temple of choice and shopping has become our form of worship where we pay homage to the gods, some of us multiple times a day. And a lot of us, a lot of people look to stuff for their identity. Think about it like this. So, um, you know, clothing isn't just something that we wear to keep our bodies warm or protected from the elements. Clothing has become fashion. And fashion isn't about staying warm. It's about identity. So we shop at the places where we shop and we wear the kinds of clothes that we wear because we are a certain kind of person. Or think about it like this. Some of you in this room are motorcycle people. And you cannot wait for warm days so you can annoy your neighbors with the loudness of... (laughs) Yeah, Chris, hold on, I'm about to step on your toes. But those of you who are motorcycle people, you would never dare to be a minivan person because a motorcycle or a minivan is not just a point a method of transportation that gets you from point A to point B it is an identity it's who we are and so for a lot of us for a lot of people stuff becomes a form of our identity for other people their identity is rooted in like pleasure so i am what i want i am what i want for other people it's popularity I am what other people think of me. I am what other people think of me. I don't know if you've ever walked into a room, you don't know a lot of people in that room, and you feel all of the pressure, all of the weight on your shoulders to project this certain kind of image. And maybe the image that you want to project is is a little bit of a better image than your actual real self. You want to project an image that does not correspond with reality. Now listen, I say all of this to say there are all kinds of places where people get their identity, but in all of the places I just mentioned, there's danger. There's danger. Because if our identity is tied to our self-worth, if it's tied to our security, if it's tied to our happiness, and if it's tied to all of those things, all of those identities can and will be taken away. They can all be removed. And if all of those things are gone, all of those sources of identity are taken away, then who are we? Who are we? If we get our identity from our job, but we lose it, or we're passed over for for a promotion because they didn't like our performance, who are we then? If we get our identity from our stuff and we can no longer afford that kind of stuff or that level of house, we can't live in it anymore. Who who are you without your fishing boat? Who are you if you don't live in that neighborhood? If we get our identity from our popularity, and this, this is awful that this is the truth, but this is the truth. If we get our identity from our popularity, what happens when we become uncool? Like, when we get too old to be cool anymore. Or our body changes, and we gain a bunch of weight, and we can't be cool anymore. Or like, 
We lose our hair and we can't. Who are? Who am I if I'm bald? <laughs> I'm sorry. All of these things, all of these identities, all of these sources of identities are, in the language of Jesus, shifting sand. Shifting sand. So what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about the other way. There's another way. So instead of basing our identity off of all of those things which are things of earth, and so we look to the things of earth in order to tell us who we are, in order of basing anything on something from this earth which can and will be removed or which can and will crumble to the ground, what if we based our identity off of the things of God and the things of heaven? What would that look like? So turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Now, Ephesians was written by Paul a few decades after the life and ministry of Jesus. And the book of Ephesians is the epicenter. It is ground zero for all of the talk and all of the discussion about who God says we are. If you want a biblical understanding of who God says you are, read and study through the book of Ephesians. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Would you stand with me this morning in honor of the reading of God's word? Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, reading through verse 14. Paul says this, Bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing that comes from heaven. God chose us in Christ to be holy and blameless in God's presence before the creation of the world. God destined us to be his adopted children through Jesus Christ because of his love. This was according to his goodwill and plan and to honor his glorious grace that he has given to us freely through the son whom he loves. We have been ransomed through his son's blood. We have forgiveness for our failures based on his overflowing grace, which he poured over us with wisdom and understanding. God revealed his hidden design to us, which is accomplishing to his good will and the plan that he intended to accomplish through his son. This is what God planned for the climax of all times, to bring all things together in Christ, the things in heaven along with the things on earth, We've also received an inheritance in Christ. We were destined by the plan of God who accomplishes everything according to his design. We are called to be an honor to God's glory because we were the first to hope in Christ. You too heard the word of truth in Christ, which is the good news of your salvation. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit because you believed in Christ. And the Holy Spirit is the down payment on our inheritance, which is applied toward our redemption as God's own people, resulting in the honor of God's glory. This is God's word for us this morning. You can be seated. All right, I want to teach you. The key phrase in chapter 1 of the book of Ephesians and really all throughout the letter when Paul is talking about our identity, the, the key phrase is the simple phrase, in Christ. 
in Christ. That little, profound, powerful phrase is used over 150 times in the New Testament, primarily by Paul. It is Paul's favorite way to talk about scribe, how when we become followers of Jesus, we are incorporated, we are united with Christ. Which means that as we are in Christ... What is true about Christ is now true about you. As you and I, as we are found in Christ, as we are united with him, what is true of Christ is now true about you. It's now true about me. Everything. Everything and anything that is true about Christ as we are found to be in him, as we are incorporated into him, as we are united with him, anything and everything that's true about Christ is true about you. Now listen, the key to understanding that whole thing, the key to understanding it is that word Christ. Here's what we often don't understand. The word Christ is the Greek version of the Hebrew word Messiah. In fact, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. So whenever you're reading through your New Testament this year and you run into that Greek word Christ, think Messiah. And when you think Messiah, think about that long-awaited king of Israel who was one day going to come and be, listen, Israel's future representative. Now, we don't have kings in our culture. We don't have kings in our world. But kings represent their people. Think about it this way. You remember that old story? Actually, I want to read you a portion of a quote from N.T. Wright. N.T. Wright says this. N.T. Wright says this. When Paul speaks about us being, quote, in Christ, the center of what he means is that the king represents his people, so that what happens to him happens to them. And what is true of him is true of them. Let me illustrate it to you with this story. You remember that Old Testament story, favorite story when kids are growing up, especially boys, when when boys are growing up in church, the story of David and Goliath. For those of you who don't remember the story of David and Goliath, David was an Israelite, Goliath was a member of the big, bad Philistine army. What we often don't understand, especially if we don't know Old Testament geography, is that the area where that battle was taking place meant that David's hometown would have been the next town to fall. So the armies meet out, and they're about to clash. And if they lose that battle... David's family and his hometown would have been wiped off the map and destroyed. So there's a battle, right, between David, who represents Israel, and Goliath, who represents the Philistines. Now David was already anointed to be the king, so David was the representative of his people. And now you know how the story goes. David, like, has the nastiest slingshot in the world, 
and he takes down the giant with a stone. And in that moment, who won? David. David won. But David's victory wasn't just his victory. David's victory was also Israel's victory. Because Israel won as a result of his victory. And in that moment, David won his freedom. But David's freedom also became all of Israel's freedom. Same concept applied from David to Jesus. Jesus has won the decisive victory over the oldest, meanest, and nastiest, darkest enemy of all. And through Jesus the Messiah's victory, his victory has become our victory. His freedom, as we are in Christ, has become our freedom. His rule and his reign that he won by defeating the enemy, as we are in Christ, we now have full access to us. What Paul is saying is this, we are incorporated, we are united in Christ, and everything that is true about him is true of us. And so the basic and underlying idea of what Paul is trying to say is so simple, but so extremely profound. What is true about Christ is true of you. Listen to me, church. What is true about Jesus is true of you. This is where we get that cliche that we throw around in Christian circles. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. When God looks at you, he sees Jesus. And that is a, that's a gross oversimplification, but there is a lot of truth in that. When God sees you, he sees you as you are incorporated into his son, Jesus Christ. He sees that as your identity. And Paul's trying to make that clear. He's trying to persuade us. He tried to persuade the Ephesians. He's trying to persuade you and me. Just look at all of the identity statements that exist in in chapter 1, verse 3 through 14 that we read that I do not want you to miss. This is who Paul says you are as you are in Christ. You're blessed with every spiritual blessing, verse 3. You're chosen before the creation of the world, verse 4. You're holy, you're blameless, you're loved, you're predestined, you're adopted as sons and daughters, you live under God's pleasure, you are in God's will, you are redeemed, forgiven, wise and understanding, you are aware of the mystery of Christ. You are chosen in verse 11. You are included in verse 13. You are saved in verse 13. Listen, church, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. You are God's possession. You are in line for an inheritance. You exist for God's praise of his glory. And that's just verses 3 through 14, which is one giant run-on sentence. Paul continues like this for three chapters. In the book of Ephesians, he's unrelenting for three chapters, trying to persuade us 
who we really are. He says things like, you are God's poema, you are God's creation. You have been made alive in Christ. You've been clothed in his righteousness. On and on and on. Listen, that's who you are. As you are incorporated in Christ, that is who you really are. And you might be thinking, no, uh, Troy, I'm not. I'm not. Um, You don't know this, but Troy, I was up late last night, and and I was plotting my revenge on people who've hurt me. Or Troy, you, you can't see into my heart, so you don't know it, but listen, I'm wrecked by envy. Bitterness has not just, like, taken a foothold in my life. It is my life. Or you might say, that's not who I am. I can't control my desires. I cannot control my desires. Or I'm so selfish. I'm so selfish. Like, I'm selfish with my time. I'm selfish with my resources. I spend everything I have on myself. I don't give anything away. That is not at all who I am. How could that possibly be true of me? What Paul would counter with is, no, that's really who you are. That is who you are in Christ, because everything that is true of Christ is true of you. And Christ is holy. So you are too, as you are in Christ. And here's the kicker. This is not true of you on some like idealistic, aspire to this kind of level. It's becoming true of you in reality. Here's an idea that might help you understand that, or it might hurt. We'll see in about five minutes. There is a now, and there is a not yet. There's a rhythm. There's a now, and there's a not yet to the kingdom of God. So when Jesus talks about God's kingdom, sometimes he talks about it like this sucker is happening now. It is here. Other times when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, he says, it's not here yet. One day it will be, but it's not yet here. That's in the future when God returns and makes it all right. There's a now and a not yet. And so you might say, well, what what is it? Which one is it really? And the answer is yes. Yes. It's here now in part, but not here yet in full. For that, we have to wait. Now let's take that idea of the now and the not yet kingdom of God and let's apply that to our spiritual life. Let's apply it to our spiritual journey. And when we do, this is what we learn. You and I, you are in the process of becoming who you really are in Christ. You and I, you are in the process of becoming who you already are in Christ. Our identity isn't rooted in the past. It's not even rooted in the present. It's rooted on who we are becoming in the future in Christ. 
Now, here's the thing. For most of us, like, our identity isn't, isn't even yet rooted in Jesus Christ. It's still rooted in the stuff of earth. But even for most of us, if our identity is rooted in Christ, for most of us, it's, like, based on the past, like, who we once were, or based in the present, like, who we are now. We've yet to understand that the truest thing about us is who we are becoming in Jesus Christ. So let me put it to you as a question. What if the most true thing about you, what if the most true thing about me, what if our identity was rooted not in the past? What if it wasn't even rooted in the present, but what if it was rooted on who we are becoming in Christ? Now listen, for the first few chapters of the book of Ephesians, Paul, for three chapters says over and over and over, this is who you are. This is who you are. Not a single command. He doesn't say, so do this, do this. He doesn't say that for three chapters because Paul knows that what we do flows out of the truth or the lies about who we believe we are. The first command that happens in the entire letter is in chapter 4, verse 1, where Paul says this, Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I encourage you, live as people worthy of the call you received from God. In other words, this is who you are. Now go do it. Go live that out. This is who you are becoming in Christ. Go live into it. Um, The very end of that that, that gritty war movie, Saving Private Ryan, and I hate to offer up any spoilers to you, but you've had 20 years, so hopefully. (laughs) We get this scene of like Matt Damon, and it's decades into the future now. It's decades into the future, decades after the war. He's an old man, 60-something, World War II vet, and he's back at the cemetery. And there's this moment, you see all the crosses, and there's this moment where he kind of starts to break down there as he's at the cemetery, looking at the crosses of all of the people who died in that war so that he could live. There's this moment where he cries and he breaks down and he says this, and I quote, I hope I've earned what you've done for me. I hope I've earned what you've done for me. Now, so his wife comes up, and he looks at her, and he says to her, tell me I've lived a good life. And that's it. It's kind of like this haunting ending. I mean, he's alive, which is nice. That makes you feel happy. But he's alive because all of these other people died to make him alive, and now he's living with this crippling weight of their expectation, and in his mind, he's thinking, did I earn it? Like, did I measure up to it? Did I I live up to it? That's not what Paul is talking about. That's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not saying, okay, go out and earn this now. Go out and earn it. It's like, Jesus died for you, so now you got to live in such a way that you earn that. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is, we have this firmly rooted identity in God, 
who has given to us this beautiful calling. So don't waste your life on anything less than your true identity. Live into who you already are in Christ. All right, it was Valentine's Day this week. Fellas, if you missed that, there's always next year. It was Valentine's Day this week. So um, um, because it's Valentine's Day, you know, love was in the air. When love is in the air, you think about all of the beautiful moments in your relationship with your spouse. I was thinking about our wedding day. So I have a photo for you of our wedding day, Sherry and I's wedding day. Um, in the state of Illinois, at the time we were, were married, it, this, is, this law is wrong and should be changed. But in the state of Illinois, you could get married really young. Like, that's wrong. Kyla, it's wrong. 20, I, was 20, I was 23. Sherry was 21. Now listen, think about that. Just a few years removed from high school. Just a few years removed from high school. And I was 23 years old, and while I, while I might like to think that I was mature for a 23-year-old, I was 23. And in that moment, as we stood at the very front of the church where she grew up, and the pastor who saw her grew up, said to us, I pronounce you, I declare, you are husband and wife. How good do you think I was at being a husband? Let me make that easy for you. Sherry, I'm so thankful you didn't speak up. Not good. Not good. But in that moment, as a 23-year-old, I became her husband. I will never be more or less of a husband. I can be a good husband or a bad husband, but my status from that moment was unquestioned. I am her husband. Now, for the rest of our, our earthly life together, I will spend the rest of my life learning to be who someone already said I am. I'll spend the rest of my life learning how to be her husband, learning how to live up to the high calling that is already on my life. My point is this. Our identity is not rooted in the shifting sands of the things of earth. It's not rooted in what we do or what we have or the, what people think about us. It's rooted in who God says we are. It's rooted in Christ, but our identity isn't rooted in our past. It's not rooted in our future or in our present. Our identity is rooted in our future. It's rooted on who God has said we already are and who we're in the process of becoming. This is who you are, Paul says, and you might want to fight back with, no, I'm not, but God's declared that's your status. So now live into it. Become who God says you already are. And when we start to see ourselves that way, because that's the way that God starts to see us, it is a momentous turning point in our life. I love the way that David Benner, I love how he puts this. He says this, 
an identity grounded in God's love would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to mind is our status as someone deeply loved by God. For all of you in this room who have been blessed with the beautiful privilege and opportunity of being a parent, you already know how this works. And when, when your child is growing up, your role as a parent is, un, is to begin to understand who they really are, to notice who they're made and formed to be, and then to love them into who they already are. That's who they are. They have this firmly rooted identity. And your job is to love them into that. That's how our Heavenly Father treats us. Our Heavenly Father loves us into who we already are. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of times in our life where we want to take the opinion from the things of this earth and use that to teach us who we are. Paul has another way. This is who you are in Christ. And once we realize who we are in Christ, we realize this is who God says of us already. And then we get the joy of living into that, of becoming who God says we all ready are. Now, that's a lifelong journey. And that journey's never done. So whether you're 8 or 18 or 88 in this room, every day is the opportunity to get one step closer, one step further along into the way that God says we already are.